It is our absolute pleasure to welcome our first Academy Award-winning guest, Mr. Paul Hirsch, who edited a few films that you will know. Carrie, let's see. What else, James? Uh, the, well, uh, so he won an Academy Award. We'll get no, to, no, 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 no. Don't no, say which we'll get, one. We'll get to what he won for, but let's talk about what he was nominated for. Oh, recently. yeah. Ray. Ray, yeah. Ray. So, Ray... Um, uh, uh, the your wife's favorite movie, Still Magnolias. Yes, absolutely. Still Magnolias. Um, Mission Impossible. Uh, and actually, Mission Impossible. And he also edited. Um, why am I blanking on Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol? Mm-hmm. And he edited that. I, we didn't get a chance to talk to him about that, but I believe he edited that. And his daughter, I believe, was part of the team that edited that. She is an editor. Yeah. In yeah, her own right. Right. We didn't get a chance to talk to him about many things. Uh, we could have kept him on for three or four hours, and he assured us he wasn't going to do it. Damn it. He didn't actually say that. <laughs> no, no, no. He told well, us two. He, there's two anecdotes you're absolutely going to love. One of them's about Anne Bancroft, right? Yes. And the other one is about Joel Schumacher, who directed the best Batman movie, Batman and Robin. That's uh, a joke. It is not the best Batman movie, but he did edit a couple of Joel Schumacher films. So, yeah, some of the movies that he worked on, and we mentioned a couple of them, but I'm just going to ramble through a couple of these. You've got Phantom of the Paradise. Yep. All of the films. You've got Carrie. We yep. mentioned. Sisters. Uh, I'll, I'll skip the big one. Uh, the big two, actually. You've got yeah, Palma. Just, Palma. You've got uh, Footloose, because we're going to get loose. Footloose. Uh, two of my favorite John Hughes films. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. We've already mentioned Steel Magnolias. Raising Kane, uh, Falling Down. Falling Down. Yep. Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. Uh, uh, Mighty Joe Young, Mission to Mars. Uh, Back to De Palma again. Yeah, yeah. Righteous Kill. Even because it is the holiday season, we should mention Deck the Halls. Yeah. Uh, and some films that did big international business and um, war, uh, Warcraft, based yep. on World of Warcraft. Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones, and and recently The Mummy. Yep. But uh, Joe, do you want to say the big? Yeah. So he won an Oscar for a little film that you probably never heard about. If you actually were to turn the camera that way, you could see that I have the one sheets for the first two in that particular trilogy. I wasn't going to take it down because I have it. I, and James has seen it. I actually have it in museum glass frames. Yeah, so, yeah, because it's an Academy Award winning, winning movie. And he won an Academy Award for this little picture right here. I've got a little bit of a glare. Can you see that there's uh, some sort of wars that take place yes. during the stars? Um, yeah, some sort of space battles. Space okay. battles. Yeah, Star Wars. This is one of the chroma arts from 1994 I've had on my wall. I have this one. And I have... The one from Empire Strikes Back, which he also did what, James? He edited. So he edited him. So, so our guest is Paul Hirsch. Paul Hirsch has written his autobiography right here. Actually, I picked up the wrong book. I actually have it right here. He says, "A long time ago, in a galaxy, in a cutting room, uh, far, far away." Mr. Paul Hirsch is on our episode. I've known about this. We got this booked. Well, we he agreed to do it back in June, but he wanted to wait a while, and I couldn't announce it, and it was killing me because I was like, we're going to have an Academy Award winning brother, but I couldn't tell everybody in case something fell through. I didn't want to look stupid, but he spent a little over an hour with us. He was very charming, extremely gracious with his time, 
And there is this book, which you can get on Amazon, which you can get from his website, which you can get at your local bookstore. Check it out. I've started reading it. I'm about a third way through. Some of the stories are great. And if you're a fan of horror, we've got Carrie. If you're a fan of De Palma, we got Carrie. If you're a fan of science fiction, we have Star Wars and how that happened and, and his times with Lucas. It's falling and, out and, with De Palma, how they reconcile. And really quick, if there, there is another book, not written by him, and read his book first, but there's another book that actually focuses on one of the reasons Star Wars became a classic is the editing. Yeah. And, and so you get that story. And like I said there's an entire book dedicated to just that process. Read his book instead. Yeah. Um, so, real quick, we mentioned a couple of the ones. The other movies that he worked on uh, that, speaking of horror, World War Z, he was an uncredited additional editor yeah. for that. The Great Gatsby, if you're a fan of classic that literature. Was a, that was a horrible horror film. Um, yeah, it was. Um, but, I, and again, um, and, and more recently as well, Disney's The Nutcracker in the Four Realms film, he was an additional editor. Yeah. So still very much active. So you're not going to get, he just did start, you're going to get the gestalt, really, of films that impacted, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, or even today. Or the 70s, yeah. Yeah. He, he is, he's influenced cinema for the last 40 years. Really quick, I have, I want to say, go out, buy his book. Buy his book. It's a fascinating, really well-written book. I couldn't compliment him enough. And I know what the first of it you're going to hear. It was like, why is Joe kissing his ass? Because I didn't, this sounds like an insult, but I have read other books written by filmmakers, editors, and this one's really well-written. I well, do. I, I'll, go ahead. Uh, one, one thing I do want to say as well is that, you know, when, when you're thinking about looking at for his book, another thing we should say, and he mentioned <clears> this a little bit at the end, see if he's appearing near you. See if yeah. you can get this book signed. Yeah, he's doing um, a lot of appearances. He was just at Chicago. He did a live uh, Q&A after Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He said, he, well, he talks about it in our interview. Yeah, yeah. Watch the interview. And watch then buy the book. Yeah, yeah. buy the book. And then subscribe to Bonehead Weekly. We'd like that and share us. Buy the book. I buy the ticket. Take, take the, ride. the ride. Really quick, I got to apologize for two things on this. One of them, uh, Mr. Hirsch looks great. We look like crap if you're watching it on the YouTube version because we are we had some issues with Skype. And that's not Mr. Hirsch's fault. That's our fault. We usually use Zoom, so you can only see Chad in it. It's weird. The other thing. But if you're a big Chad fan. Fan, this is the episode. If you love editing it. and Chad and Paul Hirsch, this is the best episode you're to watch on YouTube. You don't see me, I believe, at all. You'll hear no, me. I think you see half my head at some time. But and that's, that's our so fault. great episode for Chad fans. If the, for our folks listening to it, the audio on our side is a little wonky because for some odd reason, the uh, the Blue Yeti wasn't working with Skype. It's a long story. However, we have our first Academy Award winner, Mr. Paul Hurst. Thank him so much. We're going to tag him in it. Subscribe to Bonehead. Check this out and let us know. And don't forget to go out and buy his book for all your filmmaking friends this holiday season. Thank you so much for being on Bonehead Weekly. I oh, could... you forgot the most important part yeah. of, of Kentucky. What? 99% of the world's disco balls are made right here. <laughs> it's that's... a weird fact. <laughs> that's... I don't know if we need to be proud of that. I don't yet. even know that we needed to tell him that. So, hey, I love the nightlife. I love to boogie. <laughs> so, moving right along in our show, welcome which, so which, much. Which one is Chad? This is Chad. I am Joe, and that is James. James. And we've been doing so a lot of what we do is 
this show, we both all work in higher education. Chad and I work at the University of Kentucky. James is a full-time faculty at the University of... Southern Mississippi. Southern Mississippi. So we work in higher ed, and, and movies have always been what we love on the on the side. And we both uh, moderate a lot of cons, these conventions and whatnot. So the yeah. last few years, we started doing a podcast, and we do a video version of it as well. And it's our pleasure to have Paul Hirsch on today. And this book looks familiar. Do you know who the guy is on the front here? <laughs> I, I think I am until I look in the mirror. <laughs> well, that's okay. You're, you're looking, actually, when we, we were having techno, technical difficulties, and we we all three looked at each other after, and it was like, he looks very dapper. <laughs> we like your jacket. <laughs> and I can't help but notice there's something shiny. Let's see, that would be to your right on that shelf right there. Yeah, that's my my goodie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was wondering, so do you always keep it there? Where, where do you usually, do you have a, a in glass and you walk into the room and the light comes on? And, to, and to our podcast listeners, we are talking about, about his, his Oscar. Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> it's on a shelf in my office. My office measures about uh, uh, four feet by eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so getting started... The first question I have is, why a book now? And I've got to be, I'm going to, that's the first question, but I want to follow it up with a comment, and it's really a compliment. I just got it last week. I told you, we, we've had this plan since June, and we've kept it quiet. We haven't told anybody, because we wanted to make sure that we actually got to do it. Okay. And we were so excited when, it, when, when you said you would do it when the book came out. But I'm about 50, 60 pages in. I have a two-year-old, so forgive me. I'm trying to read. 20 pages when I can. And this is really well written. Oh, thank you. So we've had several people on who have written books. Some of them are, most of them had great stories. Uh -huh. You have good stories, but this is really well written, sir. Well, thank you. I'm not sure what you mean by that. I, uh, <laughs> I never considered myself a writer. And when I was a kid, I always gravitated more toward math than English. And when I went to college, I tried to avoid any courses that would involve me having to write papers, uh, which is impossible, of course, but I tried to keep it to a minimum. Um, so I never really considered myself a writer, much of a writer. And to tell you the truth, whenever I wrote something, I thought it sounded like a term paper. So when people <laughs> say they like my writing, I go, OK, thank you. I didn't expect it, and uh, makes me, I'm happy to hear it. Well, take the compliment, because I've read several books from different editors, filmmakers. The other book that it was reminding me of, even though I th actually think yours is slightly better. Are you familiar with this book and this gentleman? Yes. Yeah. Ralph it's Rosenblum. What did you say? Ralph Rosenblum. Uh-huh. Ralph Rosenbaum. So it's a great book on editing that a lot of people have talked about over the years. But I'm, I've got to be honest, I'm having a little bit more fun with your book, actually. Well, so Alf's book is a lot older than mine, so maybe the references aren't as familiar to you. Well, I, I I actually think you're just a good writer. I because he talks about Mel Brooks, and there's some great stories in that one as well. Because he cut the producers, and among many other films that we won't probably get here about because we're here to talk to you about it, your work. But he just isn't the writer you are. So, what okay. made you what made you write the book? Well, I was on location in Vancouver in the uh, last year of the previous millennium. 
Yeah. And uh, my wife, Jane, had stayed behind in L.A. And it was the weekend and I was bored. And um, I had been telling these stories on the set with some success. And I thought to myself, I should write these stories down because they're, yeah. they're pretty good stories. And, yeah. uh, and they're all true, of course. Um, so I, that's what I did. I started, I wrote one chapter. I wasn't going to write it chronologically. Uh, I thought, well, that's boring, you know. And then um, as I started to write it, I found myself having to constantly backfill and explain, well, I had met him earlier years ago when I had done a picture called so-and-so, and I thought, this is, this is ridiculously complicated. I should just, I'll just write it chronologically. And then uh, uh, when I was editing the book many years later, um, my agent said, well, there's an interesting thing about the book business. When you submit a book for, for uh, acquisition at a publisher, they right. only read the first 50 pages. So I didn't know that. So agent <laughs> said, you have to get Carrie. Car everyone knows Carrie. You have to get Carrie in the first 50 pages. So I looked at the book and I thought, well, that's going to cut out about how I got started in the business, which is the, the question I get asked the most. How did you get started? Right. What people usually find the most interesting. So my editor, a wonderful woman named Jenny Shute, uh -huh. um, suggested, why don't you start with Carrie? And then uh, that way it'll be in the first 50 pages, of course. So that's what I did. And uh, it worked out because I went from Carrie to Star Wars, which is the picture that everyone seems to be most interested in, now called A New Hope. <laughs> I'm, learning, we, I'm learning that it's now called the new hope uh, a new hope but we always called it star wars <laughs> and um uh since i went from carrie to star wars the chapter on carrie which is the first chapter in the book uh, ends with me going off to work on star wars which is what everyone's most interested in mm -hmm. and i took the what had been the first chapter which was about it was called getting started yeah um, I retitled it 10 years earlier and I circled back and I explained how I got to the point of going from Carrie to Star Wars. What I find interesting about that is a couple of things, but the first is I love Carrie. I love Star Wars. If you looked behind the wall, there's a one sheet of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. They're both original. And of course you cut both those pictures, but I would have thought that they would have wanted you to start, as much as people love Carrie, that they would have wanted you to start with Star Wars rather than Carrie. Uh, they didn't. Yeah. Well, they didn't say that. Yeah. No, I. <laughs> that wasn't the suggestion. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I just because I understand. I guess he, why... to, I guess he was trying to observe the chronological yeah. uh, flow as much as possible. Right. I know that they probably wouldn't want you to start with Hi Mom and, and getting involved with the Palma, but I, I, I do. That's it's fascinating. So let's start from the beginning, if you don't mind. And I it's you went to art school. Your your father was a was a painter, right? Yeah, I went to the high school of music and art. Yeah. Public high school in New York City. And you can major in either art or music. I was a music major and I played the drums. I was a timpanist in the symphony orchestra there. Wow. And um, uh, I entertained for about a day the notion of becoming a professional percussionist and a very 
kind and wise and uh, thoughtful teacher talked me out of it. <laughs> she said, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Don't do that. So, so you, you went to college and then studied? Yeah, I went to Columbia. Uh-huh. Um, didn't know what I wanted to major in. And there was a teacher on campus whose courses everyone talked about. He was, was just a fabulous teacher, you know. And great teachers can make any subject interesting. Yes. Um, so this guy was a fabulous teacher, and he taught two courses, one in the fall on Italian Renaissance painting and one in the spring on Northern Renaissance painting. And uh, I, I took these courses and decided to become an art history major, mm -hmm. not knowing what I wanted to do. I, I had a sense that because my father had been a painter and my mother had been a dancer as a young woman, that uh, I wanted to do, uh, you know, my, my tendency was to toward the, something in the arts in some way. And I actually applied to and was accepted at the Columbia School of Architecture. Yeah. But uh, it turned out that that was too dry for me. And I had I'd already gotten a bachelor's degree. And here I was starting a four-year program for a second bachelor's degree. And it just seemed like uh, too great a commitment to school. I wasn't I was ready to go out and into the world at that point. So um, I left. I didn't even tell them I was leaving. I just stopped going. <laughs> to this day, I still get mail from the Alumni Association of the Architecture School. But <laughs> <laughs> Did they not know you didn't graduate? <laughs> not only didn't I graduate, I didn't make it to midterms the first year. <laughs> I left around this time in the first semester and uh, got a job. A friend of mine had been cutting a, a, uh, a little documentary in his apartment on West End Avenue in New York, and I visited him. It was the first time that I ever saw a moviola. A moviola was mm -hmm. a standard workhorse editing machine for film editors for 50 or 60 years, maybe right. 70 years. And um, when I saw it, it was in uh, 1966, the the videotape machine, the Betamax, had not been invented uh, yet. And the only way you could see a moving image in those days was at the movies or on television. Right. There was no way to record a video image at that time. So there was no such thing as pause. There was no such thing as fast forward. There was no such thing as rewind. But this moviola could do all those. And, you, you know, the, it just seemed like a fantastic... Uh, really neat piece of equipment and he had a cutting room with splicers and synchronizers and uh you know what a synchronizer is a little bit so we're probably a little more well probably slightly more familiar than some of the people that have been interviewing you yeah uh, yes mm -hmm. this uh, let's see here this is a synchronizer mm-hmm and uh, it was all kind of neat stuff like that they had around the house. And I was interested in, uh, I liked working with my hands at the time, so I thought, I want to learn about this. So I got a job working for a, uh, an industrial film company in New York called Dynamic Films, and they made stock car races, uh, films of stock car races. And then 
they would tag on uh, at the at the end of it a uh, plug for STP or uh, Firestone tires or spark plugs or whatever, and they would sell them to various companies for um, purposes of se- uh, showing them at their sales conventions and so forth. And while I was working there delivering packages, I would take <coughs> excuse me. I'd take cut work prints to the lab, uh, to, to the negative cutter, and I'd pick up cut negative from the negative cutter, take it to the lab, and I'd pick up prints from the lab and bring them back to the company. And uh, I did this for a couple of weeks, and the negative cutter that I was bringing stuff to told me he was looking for an assistant to train. So I asked one of the editors there, I said, is that a good idea? He said, well, you'd be handling film instead of packages. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, okay. So after two weeks, I gave him two weeks' notice. <laughs> I went to work. I went to work uh, as a negative cutter. I learned the technical end of the business, how you prepare a negative for printing and, and all that. And then as soon as I stopped learning, um, it became very boring. And the guy I was working for was a screamer, so I quit. Yeah. Um, I got a job as an assistant editor, even though I wasn't an assistant editor, but um, I got a job at a trailer house. They were doing trailers and television, spot, television spots for MGM and United Artists. And um, um, after a while, they had more work than they could handle. They were expanding at that point, And they started giving me, they gave me a 10-minute film, uh, a featurette, it's called, The Making of a Film, about the Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, yeah. Steve McQueen. And... Um, they wanted a three-and-a-half-minute version of this 10-minute film, so I did that. And then they gave me one to do from scratch for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mm-hmm. a client like that. And from then on, I was I was editing, and then I started doing trailers as well. Um, that's how I got started. So that's um, – do you think – I'm assuming that, that this is a re- fairly redundant question, but you're not the first person who got into movies or at least classically trained in – maybe editing or at least directing, cutting their teeth on trailers. Um, filmmakers like Alan Arkish and Joe Dante cut trailers for Corman, I think, before they actually got their chance to direct, if I'm not mistaken. So how did that prepare you later? Did it just m- give you more of like these thing as far as cutting to the point? Or did it give you a training to make a movie flow better? Well, trailers are its own thing you know but what the thing about trailers is that it's all about rhythm right rhythm and pace so um and showmanship too so without giving too much away from the movie too well they don't care about that you know oh really (laughs) i mean i've seen some trailers where they just i saw the trailer for mission impossible i turned to brian i said okay well they just gave away for free every great moment in the movie and we're going to (laughs) boring crap in between. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they're so desperate to get people in the seats. They'll show everything, you know, right. But but trailers are are rhythm. And then you pick up the, you know, what your skills that you're learning as a trailer editor is how to do stuff with rhythm. Uh, it doesn't help you to look at dailies and figure out where to cut in and where to get out. I mean, because Trailer editors are all working from cut material, so it's a different it's a different skill. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think about your personality attracted you to editing? I know you you briefly said that you liked working with your hands. Yeah. 
why why not direct why not production design why not because your parents were artists i know that you fell in love with film and i've got to the part of the book of being well i've gotten past it but your time in france and going to the great movie houses because like our just so our audience knows to reiterate what you said there was no vhs tapes there was no beta if you either caught it on television or you saw it in the theater yeah in the french revere film and so yeah. you're able to watch a lot of classic films. I know you studied Orson Welles and a few others. Yeah. So what do you think about your personality attracts you to editing? Well, I'm sort of introverted. And uh, <laughs> I, I, so our French chat is too. <laughs> yeah, that's you basically have my you basically have my dream job. I've always wanted to be an editor. So because of the fact um, the way I view editing it's kind of because when you said you started out in art and then went to architecture, I'm kind of hearing like it was basically leading you to editing because each one you start with a blank canvas. And that's kind of how I feel about editing is they give you you're you're given some a bunch of video and you have to do something with it to make art, which I've always found fascinating. That's one of the that's why I've always loved editing. Also, I'm an introvert and just like being and alone in a room putting something together to make it look nice. So our failed <laughs> short films have been directed have by Sorry, I have to disagree with you. Oh, no, why? why oh, please. Because you're not starting with a blank canvas. You know, you're starting with material that's given to you. So you're not creating the material that you're working with, uh, like a writer or a painter facing a blank canvas, literally a blank canvas or, an, you know, right. a blank page sitting down to work. Those are creative skills. Uh, those are the creative arts. I would say that editing is more an interpretive art, like a violinist picking up a score by a composer and playing it. He's bringing his art to something that someone else has created. Right, or, yeah. Or a dancer who uh, choreographs something to a piece of music that's already written. So I would say that, in my view, editing is an interpretive skill, or interpretive art, if you want, um, where... You look at the material and then you interpret it through your own sensibility. No, that makes perfect sense. So that leads me to the question about authorship. You've talked about that you don't feel that you've had authorship over the films, but that you've had quite a bit of input. So, well, you... I do feel a sense of authorship, but I wouldn't call myself the author. At best, I'd say, you know, in the best situations, I would say I co-authored the film with the director. Co-authored uh -huh. cut, I would say, not. Not the film, but I co-authored the cut with the director. Yeah, I'm sorry, James. I didn't interrupt you. Do you have a question? Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, okay. I know, we have so I we talked a little bit about your time in Europe. I, I there's one thing. How did you end up in a hippie commune in Eugene, Oregon? Was it a hippie commune? Uh, I don't know that it merited that that lofty name. It was just a bunch <laughs> of lost people hanging out in a house. Uh, is in Eugene, Oregon, right? Yeah, that was one of my lowest moments. Oh, well, I don't mean to bring... Sorry, I just found it fascinating when I was reading your book. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're young and you don't know much, you try and go in different directions and try things and and uh, learn what you what's right for you and what's not right for you. Yeah. Okay. 
So can you talk a little bit about your relationship? And I know you've been asked about this, I'm sure, ad nauseum, but I, I would like for you to talk a little bit about your relationship with Brian De Palma. Now, you've worked with ser several directors more than once, but nobody more than De Palma. Let me see how many times. Hold on. It is, is it 11 films, right? 11, yeah. 11 films. That's a multitude of pictures. Yes. A lot of dailies. So... Chad and Jay, yeah, I bet. So the three of us are best friends, and even we argue, even on things like this and our ideas about what we want to do. How on earth have you maintained that, I'm assuming friendship, I'm hoping a friendship, on, long, uh, on top of the professional relationships you had through 11 films? Because I can imagine those were, there's some, been some arguments through 11 movies. Yeah, well... Um... If you, you know, when you read the book, you'll see that yeah. my last collaboration with Brian didn't end well. And uh, there was a, an unfortunate hiatus in our relationship. But I'm happy to say that we reestablished um, oh, a connection again and things are on a better uh, footing. He, he was very, um, he was kind enough to write a blurb for the book. And I don't think he's ever done that for anyone else. You know, yeah, he's right there on the front. Yeah. And in the inside flyleaf as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll get there to the book eventually. I was just, how, how do you build those relationships, though? How do you make, how, how hard is it for you to maintain a little bit of your vision, but yet to also to eventually give up control sometimes because the director wants something different? Because I can imagine that sometimes that's maddening. Well, that's a given, at, you know, at the outset. The, you know, film is a collaborative enterprise, and because you have a lot of different artistic people working on the film, actors, uh, production designers, composers, uh, editors, cinematographers, all these people have um, artistic skills and sensibilities. But the, in order to, to work together, uh, the protocol is that there's one, char one person in charge making the decisions, and that's the director. So right. right. It's a given going in uh, that you are going to be um, subject to being overruled. And uh, my approach is, my job is to come up with ideas, suggestions, um, make choices that are either endorsed or revised. Um, and uh, the invention of digital editing has taken a lot of the psychological pressure off the editor because on film, in order to make a change, you had to you had to destroy the previous version. You had to take it apart. You only had one work print, right? So you couldn't save the version that you had, and that created a kind of tension between the director and the editor. So uh, that's gone now. You can just hit you know hit a button and make a copy and save it for later. So um, yeah, I mean. I always tell people we're in the suggestion business. That's, <laughs> that's my job is to make suggestions. And um, it's, it's um, part of the game. You know, you, you try to make your suggestions. And sometimes the suggestion is the, the cut that I deliver is implicitly filled with suggestions. Yeah. Um, so the game is to try to make it so, such that the director doesn't want to make any changes in it. Right. It's his choice, but it's my work. Yeah. So, um, 
that's what I mean about co-authorship, you know, to the degree that uh, my choices are endorsed. Uh, that's, you know, uh, an affirmation of my contribution to the film. Empire Strikes Back was locked four weeks after the end of principal photography. So, really? Yeah. Four weeks after? Yeah. That's impressive. I'm sorry, I haven't got to that part of the book yet. But oh. can you talk a little bit about that, how it was so quick? Uh, well, it took... <laughs> It was supposed to shoot for 16 weeks, and it shot 29. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was time for, you know, adjustments while we were getting to that point. Um, yeah, and then for, you know, after four weeks, we were done. So we lost 13 weeks out of the post schedule, but it, we made our dates anyway because we were able to lock the picture so quickly. And that's now, is to the script, that the script... Okay. The script was so strong and not flawed. It didn't have big problems in it that we had to solve in post, you know. Right. Well, I didn't know if that was because Lucas had a definitive vision, if Kirshner had a definitive vision, or they both had a definitive vision, and that was it. And you're saying it was because the script was so good. And Larry Kasdan, you know, yeah. script that, that everyone could work from. Of course, yeah, we, George had an input into it, of course, you know. Right. Lee Brackett wrote the first version, correct? And then Larry Kasdan wrote the, the filming version? So I understand. What'd you say? So I understand. You know, the, very, yeah. the editor's not around for that part. Oh, yes. okay. yeah. <laughs> well, one question I have, and, and just because you, you talk about, um, you know, seeing going to France, seeing the films, just as somebody that does this professionally, what movies would you recommend other than your own that people who are interested in seeing creative edits look at? What what classics would you recommend or, or what would you say should be films that people should watch? Well, somebody asked me recently, what's your favorite film? And I thought, I, I, you know, I find that hard to answer. But then I started listing in my mind what my favorite films are. And I thought, what's interesting about this list is that they're all black and white. Uh, <laughs> every one of them. I would start with Citizen Kane because that was the one that really blew me away yeah. uh, and, and sort of got me thinking about uh, film as a career. Yeah. Uh, and then in no particular order of preference, I would say La Strada by Federico Fellini, mm -hmm. Ice of Cabiria by Federico Fellini, uh, Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder. Wilder. Uh, Back in the day, they all had faces. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, what else? Um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. I those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. So you say Treasure of the Sierra, Sierra Madre maybe over the uh, the Most Tease Falcon? I mean, when we start talking about yeah. John Houston, yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, uh, Bog Bogart's uh, character in, in Treasure of the Sierra Madre is brilliant. That paranoia, you know, and uh, well, he's and, a real bastard. <laughs> and uh, the story as it develops, and and the the uh, just the, the the characters in it, and the way the story is told, and the, the ironic ending, you know, um, just a great movie. Yeah, I agree. White Heat is another one. Yeah. So you like Cagney? 
Not always, you know. Yeah, that's okay. I was just trying to, we're trying to delve into your mind to see what what it is that influenced you the most. Yeah, I'm, I'm Red, always interested. Red River, Howard Hawks. Yeah. Um, a lot of great movies, and they all seem to be black and white. Yeah. And I'm saying that film students today don't like to watch black and white movies, which is uh, a crime. Yeah, I don't yeah. understand that at all. Well, I'm, and we we spoke to uh, William Malone, who actually talked about his love of even silent film. Uh-huh. And I, I talked to students. Uh, I, I said I, I teach, and and I actually do an activity where I talk about film, and it's amazing how many twenty three, twenty four, twenty five, and I and I don't mean to stereotype groups because there's exceptions, but even something from the nineteen seventies, they're like, yeah, we've never seen that. And I, I, it blows my mind. Well, there's actual friend of ours who's a production designer who was fairly, was fairly big, and he worked quite a bit. And for well, he made a career for 30 years. And he actually, there's a lot of movies in who were just in the 80s that he missed because he was working the whole time on other pictures. Right. And now that he's retired, we were talking the other day. I was like, it was one specific movie. I'm not going to bring up here. I was, How in the hell did you not see that? It was a huge hit in the 80s. Right. I, don't know, I was working on a show. What show? I don't know. well you know one of my co-evils was complaining that young people today don't know this or that or the other thing and they're so ignorant you know and i said well i don't know any of the singers coming up i don't know any of these apps that are you know so i think we're all equally ignorant only about different things that's that's, that's probably very accurate i do however think film school students should watch some black and white films and they probably should watch some european films as well but we are not going to argue that point here. Can you talk a little bit about the third act of Carrie? Because that's what people remember. And it is, of course, a, a cutting marvel. And it's interesting in the book because it was originally all split screen. That's what Brian wanted. Yes. He, he filmed the, uh, the prom to be cut in split screen from the moment that Carrie starts attacking the crowd. Yeah. Uh, to the to her exit from from the gym. Yeah. And uh, it didn't play well in in split screen, and uh, there was too much resistance to it. So Brian said, "Just you know, what he had done when he shot the the, the split screen sequence, some he had neglected to protect half the frame because he knew he was planning to use it only for his, for the left side, let's say." So you might have a light stand and a crew member standing in the right side of frame. And uh, so that was usable only as a split screen element. But there were other shots where he protected the whole frame. And I went through and used as many of the full screen shots as I could and kept the split screen only where I was forced to by uh, circumstance. Yeah. And I think the mix is kind of pleasing the way it is now. The thing about the thing about split screen is that it's appealing intellectually, but it distances you emotionally. So you're sort of reminded that you're uh, outside the experience and watching it. So it's interesting, but in terms of uh, empathizing with what's going on, it, it's a little bit of a distancing device. Yeah. So in other words, you're saying it takes you out of the movie somewhat. Yeah, even even unconsciously, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had um, I had that issue. You, it's funny you, you mentioned that, and then you you mentioned earlier about working for the trailer for Thomas Crown Affair because that's one of the issues I have with the the original Thomas Crown Affair is the fact that it constantly switches to those sometimes. It's Norman Jewison, right? It's Norman Jewison, correct? Yeah. yeah. Pablo Ferro was the guy who designed all the the panels. They used to call them panels. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was, yeah. It's still a great piece of film. It's just sometimes when it when it was cutting like that, I, I had a hard time. I'm like, where does my attention need to go? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> we talked a little bit about Carrie. Do you want to mention or give us a little story about meeting De Palma? Well, I met him through my brother, Charles, who had a, j- a job at Universal Pictures in New York, whose job it was to scout writing and directing talent in New York City. But I think he was actually there to be a lightning rod to deflect uh, <laughs> fund seekers from disturbing the real executives. They would, huh. You know, somebody would come and want money from the studio to do a film. They'd say, well, talk to Hirsch there, you know, talk to him. Yeah. Uh, one of the people who came to him was Brian De Palma. And he proposed a um, um, to the studio that they finance one of his projects and they refused. So uh, he and Brian uh, decided that on um, Charles's... Uh, two-week vacation, they would shoot uh, a, a low-budget movie. My brother raised the money from uh, family, friends. I think it was something like $36,000, which adjusted for inflation is about, you know, I don't know it's still uh, probably under 100000 but, uh, you know, low low budget. And uh, the picture uh, sort of caught on. It's called Greetings, mm-hmm. which is the opening salutation in letters from the draft board. So mm-hmm. the service system would send out letters to 18-year-olds, and it would say, greetings. <laughs> and you knew right away what the letter was. You are to report to your local draft board. And uh, it was during the Vietnam War in 1968, and a story of three young guys who were trying not to be shipped off to Vietnam. Right. So, because I was cutting trailers at the time, they needed a trailer for it. I cut the trailer. I met Brian uh, that way. He and I hit it off. The picture was somewhat of a success. They got the money to do a sequel, uh, originally intended to be called Son of Greetings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was 23 years old, and I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can cut a feature. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what I didn't know. It was confidence born out of ignorance. Which is sometimes a wonderful thing. I guess. I mean, yeah. or swim, you know. So yeah. um, I made a big mistake that, uh, a rookie mistake that I've seen repeated, which is to think that if you edit each part of the movie perfectly, then the movie will be perfect. That's not the case. Yeah. So um, it, was a, it was an important lesson to learn and um yeah it's important to look at the whole movie <laughs> before before you decide to uh invite the producer to see it <laughs> yeah you talk about the screening in the book a little bit and uh it, it was not an overly successful film right it was a, we had a you, they were in a huge theater for the first screening or yeah they opened it in a big you know um i think they opened the theater with ben Hur had played a few years earlier you know <laughs> 
<laughs> 30 people in the audience and they all had worked on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been there for our short films, right? There's yeah, a couple yeah. of them. There's yeah. only four or five of them. So at least you had 30 people. Um, moving along, I, I know that you've been probably just bombarded with Star Wars questions, but there's a couple of things I want to ask about it specifically. And I haven't read this part of the book, so forgive me. I do know a little bit about the cut wasn't working originally, correct? Right. The cutting. And Lucas wasn't happy with it. It wasn't his vision. So you were brought in after. Because I know you wanted to work for Lucas, and you yeah. told your wife that you wanted to do it. You were a fan yeah. of American Graffiti, correct? And you met him through De Palma? Yeah, I met George after Graffiti. Um, yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And he was planning Star Wars at the time. Yeah, but he'd already hired an editor. Yes. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that story of how the cut wasn't working and you were brought in? Well, uh, George was shooting in the UK and he had hired a British editor, a uh, very good editor, had a number of very uh, su successful films um, to his credit. And for some reason, he just didn't get Star Wars and didn't, didn't like it or didn't, just didn't get it. And uh, when George saw what he had done at the end of principal photography, he decided not to keep him on the picture. And he asked his wife, Marcia, who had worked on American Graffiti, and she'd cut uh, Taxi Driver and uh, mm -hmm. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore for Scorsese. And he asked her to come on the picture. And he had already hired a San Francisco editor named Richard Chu, who had worked on The Conversation and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, they came through New York on their way back from the UK, and we screened Carrie for them. And they went on to California, and I got a call a couple of weeks later from Marsha saying, can you come help us work on Star Wars? Because we're not going to be, be able to meet our schedule, um, just the two of us. So um, I said, you know, the story is, it's a good story, and it's in the book. Yeah, I know you were you were a, you were a fan. You didn't quite understand, you know. I mean, what the hell is a Wookiee, right? When you're reading the script, <laughs> yeah. it was the art that attracted you to it, correct? Well, I think some production stills. Yeah. So um, the look of it was, uh, you know, I saw stormtroopers, I saw droids, I saw the sand crawler, I saw uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jawas, uh, saw the Wookiee. You know, I thought, okay, I'm in. I don't know what it is, but I'm in. You know. James, what's the great quote about him winning the Oscar? What what is it? Uh, you were was it you were too oh, yeah, young yeah. to know that you wanted I to won win? an Oscar before I planned to win an Oscar or something like that. I, re I read a quote that was attributed to you about uh, your early onset Oscar winning. Yeah, I mean, uh, I won the Oscar before I even you know <laughs> thought about maybe someday winning one. You know, uh, right. I hadn't got. I was just hoping to get another job. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. One, go ahead. I hadn't developed a desire for one yet. I mean, you know, it's always a dream in the back of your mind. But uh, when I finished Star Wars and came back to New York, it was Star Wars was the first picture I worked on that wasn't for Brian. So I came back to New York and I saw Brian. And the first thing he said to me was, you're going to win the Oscar. <laughs> and that was the first I thought of it. You know, I thought, he said, oh, yeah, he says, you're going to win the Oscar for this. 
So is it because he saw the picture? Yeah, he had seen it. And, and he's, yeah. And he saw the success it was having. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when the movie came out, he told you that. Okay. Yeah. So, well, the good thing about, I would imagine the one good thing about winning the Oscar is that you didn't have to worry about your next job. They came, they it changed, came a calling. It changed my whole life. Yeah. And, you know, as the father of a two-year-old, you can appreciate winning the Oscar a year after my first child was born. Yes. But, but, you know, what a stroke of luck that was. Yeah. Yeah. Because Christopher Walken, James, has said the same thing, right? The Winning the Oscar when he, for um, for the deer hunter? Yeah. It, it bought him his house. That's what he said. The best thing about that Oscar was it paid for his house. Yeah. You know, he was he was in work from that point on. Well, actors make a lot more money than editors. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that your Oscar did help raise that child. So... <laughs> Other than what can, so I've never been, I know it's a very cliched question and I apologize, but you are one of the few Oscar winners that we've talked to. I, do you leave, is it an out of body experience? Because isn't there a picture of you and Farrah Fawcett, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So is that an, do you just leave your body and it, you, you don't realize where you're at? What's, what's it, can you describe in any way, shape or form how that feeling is? Well, too young to really appreciate it. A week earlier, I was at the um, Eddie Awards, which mm -hmm. is an, an award given by the American Cinema Editors. Yeah. And I thought, well, the Eddie, I'd never heard of the Eddie before. You know, I thought Eddie's, you know, I'm not, and I'll be cool. You know, I'm cool. And <laughs> got to the moment when they were saying, and the nominees are, my heart started to pound in my chest. And I thought I was having a heart attack. I mean, and fortunately, we didn't win because I don't know what I would have done if I had to get up and speak at that moment. Uh, Out of curiosity, what beat you? Do you remember? Uh, what, 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 uh, who won in, in that category? Oh, it was um, um, the turning point. Um, what's his name? Uh, well, it was for the movie The Turning Point? I'm not, I'm not familiar, yeah, with, I'm not that familiar film. with that film. Turning Point was directed by Herbert Ross. It was nominated for 11 Oscars. Oh, um, wow. 11 Oscars, and it won zero. So it looks like we got some homework. To I've do. got some homework to do, and rarely does anyone beat us with that, something that we should know. And I yeah. even have questions here about Herbert Ross, but <laughs> I've never seen, because you worked with him four times, right? Yes. Herbert yeah. was one of the most important directors in Hollywood. Uh, he directed movies that had the biggest stars, mm -hmm. directed a lot of um, films um, by Neil Simon. And um, he was the go-to studio director for the most prestigious products, uh, projects. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have actually never seen Turning Point. Yeah. Now so, we get homework. So did you, did you have the same reaction when the Oscar happened? Yeah, so when, you know, so when they were... At the Oscars, during the commercials, they would say, uh, recipients, keep your you know, speeches short and don't worry about the fact that 300 million people are watching you. Because <laughs> that's what you want to be reminded of right beforehand. Especially now, don't worry. There's only 300 million people. There's only three channels and they're 
not, the two other channels don't even have new programming on tonight. They're running reruns because of this. Well, I, and I right? would imagine, <laughs> I, I mean, because I'm not quite as introverted as Chad, but I'm introverted. And even when I teach before 30 students, yeah. I, always, I tell them I have to go to my office and I have to, you know, give myself a pep talk. So I can't imagine if somebody looked at me and be like, okay, now there's 3 million. Don't get nervous. So I, that's amazing. 300 million. Three, yeah, 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 no, yeah 300 no. million. Uh, that would just be, <laughs> I would have to have cue cards or so something. So anyway, but, you know, my, my heart started to pound, and I thought, oh, I recognize this feeling. So it didn't take me by surprise. Yeah. And then, of course, because uh, we hadn't, I expected the turning point to win again. But, uh, and you know, I was running, and I was nominated against um, Walter Murch for Julia and Michael Kahn for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, you know, uh, people who went on to have extremely distinguished careers. Why well, can't I remember the name of the editor of The Turning Point? I'm going to have to look it up. But anyway, uh, it'll come to me after I get off the line with you guys. Well, that's okay. We're going to have to actually go watch Turning Point because I yeah. thought I had seen. Yeah, but with and we've seen the other movies, of course, Close mm-hmm. Encounters and Julia, but. But that's stiff competition. Uh, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you going to edit this? We usually don't. We usually just put it out the way it is. We can't edit uh, out if there's you, anything that you want to remove. I was going to tell you a story that involves uh, an obscenity. So, oh, you can obscene. You can say shit, damn, fuck, whatever <laughs> you like. <laughs> if you feel, if you don't, if you want to protect your image, that's okay. You can tell us afterwards. Well, no, it's it's a good story. Herbert, please. Was Shirley MacLaine and um, uh, Mel Brooks's wife. Um, Anne Bancroft, right? Anne Bancroft. Yeah. So Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine had been dancers together as young women. Okay. And one had stayed in the business, and one had left the business, and. Um, the scene they're, they're going to stage was sort of a climactic scene uh, where the two women have a fight. They mm-hmm. fight each other. So Shirley uh, calls Herbert over. She says, uh, I just want to talk to you a little bit. And, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding the circumstance, the, con- the context of this moment. And, and uh, so while they're talking, Anne Bancroft overhears this. And she comes over and she says, Herbert, when you get finished explaining to this dumb cunt what we've been doing for the last two months, I'll be in the hotel. <laughs> and then they shot the scene. <laughs> but was the turning point editor, was that William H. Reynolds? Bill Reynolds, yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I double checked it, so I, I pulled it up on. Thank you so much for that lovely story. I want to believe that Bonehead Weekly is the only people that have gotten that story out of you as you're doing your press uh, junkets for your book. That's true. I have never told that story. Oh, good. That's amazing. Thank you. Feel free to drop all of those that you would like. We love hearing those. But that makes sense because Anne Bank, she had to have a strong personality to deal with Mel, Mel Brooks, Brooks for 30, 40 years. Yeah. 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 And and jumping around a little bit, because if I don't ask questions about one film that you you uh, edited, I'll I'll, I'll get in trouble when I go home tonight. 
because it's a favorite film of my wife. And, yes. and as I was talking about getting to talk to you, I said guess. Star Wars and all that stuff. Hold on. He's going to guess. Ferris. No? No. Still oh. Magnolias. Oh. Okay. And so what, what? That's right. You're from the South. And exactly. <laughs> it's, it, it's got Dolly in it. So, I mean, my, my wife grew up in Western Kentucky. Uh, and so she actually went to places like Dollywood. <laughs> And, Which is directed by Herbert Ross, by the way. Just to go um, but the so so talking about that, I, I'm actually curious because you edited films, you know that you have Star Wars, space fantasy, epic, all of that. You do have Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is is, I, I mean, I think is shown. And we have some John Hughes questions in a minute, but keep going, James. Um, but then you also have Steel Magnolias and, and Footloose. What is just from an editing viewpoint, and, and and you mentioned music earlier that that is there's kind of a beat to it. What is the difference between a beat for kind of a drama versus science fiction versus Carrie horror? What? How do you approach that as a director? Is it like a difference in a musical beat? Well, yeah, the finding the rhythm of each individual picture. Well, like I said, you know, editing is sort of an interpretive art. So it's, it's as if you're a dancer and you listen to the music and you say, well, how does this make me want to move? You know, is it slow? Yeah. Is it fast? Is it exciting? Is it sad? Is it, you know, so how you respond to the material uh, is dictated by the material and your and your own sensibility. Yeah. I mean, all you really have to rely on as a uh, as an editor is your instinct. And uh, if you follow your instincts and you have good instincts, then you'll do well. Well, I, I, I want to say, and, and this is being married to someone that loves Steel Magnolias. I've seen it several times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, your the, the editing that was done between the two old ladies, uh, their their rivalry and 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 I guess humorous it's bitter. Shirley MacLaine and Olympia Dukakis. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Is. Uh, yeah. I'll be honest, as somebody that's not as near and dear a fan as my wife is, I still, there's something about the way that's that shot, cut, whatever, that I, I enjoy those scenes more than I probably should. So thank you for making that film even fun for me. Yeah, well, it was fun to, to work on. Um, I met Dolly. The interesting thing about Dolly is that she has these, you know, giant wigs and... Mm -hmm the false eyelashes and uh, very theatrical makeup and very theatrical clothing. And she's the most genuine person I've ever met in my life. She, All of the people, she's the most genuine person you've ever met. Not in Hollywood, but ever. She's, she's among, you know, I wouldn't say the most genuine, but what's fascinating about her is because she has such an artificial facade but right. it seems to it seems to vanish when you talk to her uh, that she's just a very genuine person. It's it's striking because the you know other genuine people sort of look like you know me or you or you know whatever. But uh, she comes across as a real person even despite the the showbiz uh, mm -hmm. exterior. You know, right. Can we? I know we we could sit here and talk about certain movies all day, and I and I know you've been bombarded, but can we talk a little bit about John Hughes and your connection and how you got to meet him? Yeah, how you got to work with those movies. I I've, I know you get a hit with Ferris, but the three of us 
well, honestly, my favorite John Hughes film is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Well, it's almost Thanksgiving, so that's appropriate when you talk about I, it. Yeah, I know. I wanted to talk about it, and I was so excited because we're two days away, and it, it really is the best Thanksgiving movie ever made. Well, uh, we had a screening of it in Chicago last week. And yeah. It was the first time I'd seen it in 32 years. Really? You haven't seen it that long? Because I think you posted about it. I saw it on your Facebook. You posted about it, I think, because you've done uh, several signings lately. So what were your thoughts after watching it since you hadn't seen it in 32 years? Because obviously you saw all the footage. You've seen, you've seen everything, and you were with it day in and day out for so long, but 32 years later to watch it. Well, it was great because, you know, usually when you get to the end of a picture, you can't stand to watch it even one more time. Uh, you, you've seen it so many times, you just feel like you'd rather put your eyes out than see it again, you know. So when the picture was finally done and playing in theaters and people were laughing at it, I couldn't be there. I just, it was impossible. So I never got the pleasure of seeing it play in front of a crowd. Yeah. You know, except when we were in previews, which is a different experience altogether. But um, this was the first time that I saw the finished film with an audience, and uh, we sold out the theater in Chicago, and it played great, and the laughs were huge, and uh, it was just so rewarding and fun. Uh, I forgot how funny that movie is. There were so many things in it that I'd uh, sort of forgotten by now, and it was just an absolute joy, one of the most exciting screenings of my career. That's fantastic. I, I love hearing that. Can you talk about your relationship with John Hughes and, and working with him and how that came about? Well, John had worked with uh, a legendary editor named Dee Dee Allen, who mm -hmm. was from New York. And uh, he had had such a uh, successful collaboration with her that he decided he wanted to work only with New York editors. So... Um, it was between me and Jerry Greenberg. Jerry cut the French Connection. was the first New York editor ever to win an Oscar. Mm -hmm. But he was still living in New York, and I had moved to L.A. So when um, the studio found out that J Jerry would want, you know, uh, a per diem to to be out in L.A., <laughs> he said, "You got to have you have to hire somebody locally." And fortunately, I was living in L.A. at the time. I had moved there a couple of years earlier. And uh, I met John, and that was it. Okay. So you you can you talk about? I think that there was a a lot of footage that wasn't used for Ferris, and a lot of footage that wasn't used for planes, trains, and automobiles. Is it? It's true that he he shot a lot, correct? Yes. Um, I was just reading the other day that the script for planes, trains, and automobiles ran 145 pages, and uh, the rule of thumb. In, in scripts is that a page is about a minute. Mm -hmm. It's actually a little, it's a, it usually works out to be a little longer than that. So when Steve Martin read the script, he said to John, well, so, you know, it's great. What, what are you planning to cut? And John looked at him like, cut? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. So John would not cut his scripts mm -hmm. and he would not rewrite them. And he wouldn't let any, anyone else rewrite them. Mm -hmm. So he shot this very long script. And then he had John Candy and Steve Martin, and he would encourage them to ad lib. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the first cut of the picture ran three hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, I've heard that. 
we talked we did a uh and i don't expect you to go back and watch it or listen to it but we did a whole two hours on john hughes actually because we're a huge fan so i think we talked a little bit yeah, about because, the first cut well and because john hughes and correct me if i'm wrong he was notorious anyway for just shooting like nonstop, like shooting everything over and over again like you i imagine that would that had to have been a, a quite a bit of work for you <laughs> yeah well you know they shot for 85 days yeah the picture is 93 minutes <laughs> we started out at 345 so we we took out twice as much as we left in <laughs> yeah. what was that process because he was notorious for just wanting his for wanting his own way how was he to work with uh he was great until he wasn't you know what what, <laughs> happened, what happened was we were working under extreme pressure um i compared it to laying track in front of a locomotive and um, it was a very pressure-filled situation, and um, it, it didn't end well uh, in terms of him and me, but we got over it eventually, and uh, it was just a very difficult, you know, we were working around the clock. We went into previews you know, around Labor Day, and we were booked into 4,000 theaters or something November 9th, so... Uh, we needed the month of October for mixing, so we had September to lock the picture. We were at two hours, and the first screening, people started walking out. And we were blindsided by this. We just, what the heck, you know? Yeah. Uh, we screened the picture again later that week, and then again the following week, and then again middle of the following week, and we screened the picture nine times in September, uh, trying to figure out what the problems were, and uh, reading the cards, and trying to understand what what people were having a problem with. And uh, we finally solved it, but it was not uh, difficult. I mean, it was not an easy or, or, or pleasant process. Can you can you tell us a little about, about what the problem was? Do you remember? Well, it took us four screenings to figure out that uh, one of the things, see, getting down from three hours and 45 minutes to an hour and a half or to two hours, as we first did, uh, you know, he's... You take out an hour and 45 minutes, you think you're there. Mm -hmm. When you start out so long, you cut and you cut and you cut and you think you're done, but you're not. You know, So uh, one of the things that we had taken out um, in trying to get the picture down was a, was a uh, subplot about um, money, who was going to pay for what and so forth. And there was one moment at the train station where Candy offers to uh, reimburse Steve for the, the train ticket. He says, give me your address. I'll send you the money. Mm -hmm. Steve doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy. And he says, no, that's okay. You know, All right. the, the train tickets a gift, you know. Mm -hmm. So we had taken that out. And the audience started to perceive uh, Candy's character as a user. He was taking advantage of Steve. And oh. And they turned on him. They didn't like him because of that. And then they turned on Steve for, why is he staying with this guy who's taking advantage of him? And they, they just mm -hmm. gave up on both characters. So we put that line back and then just turned it around 180 degrees. Wow. Just that one little thing but, right there yeah. at the train station. I know exactly what you're talking about. Just that one little thing changed the whole picture. Yeah. And, but then we had other problems at the ending where the, the end was um, uh, problematic. And we had to rewrite the end uh, in the cutting. And again, it takes some time to explain that, but it's in the book. You'll see. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I understand. Now, we do want people to read your book. Sorry about that. Um, Can I ask one thing about working with Hughes? Sure. So you worked on planes, trains, and automobiles with Hughes, who, which he directed. Yes. Um, but then you also did Dutch. Right. Which is we a film that we find underappreciated. It's an underappreciated class. And I'm going to have a hopefully have a question as we progress um, before we run out of time about another underappreciated film that you worked on. We've been talking um, for an hour. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. If you need to, if we need to start wrapping it up, we can, but keep going, Chad. No. So was there any. So, so how, how are you going to wrap it up? <laughs> okay. Um, but no, was there any. Um, how was working with Huge when a, a film that he didn't direct, but he did write? I mean, did he have any, was he, was he in the room working on Dutch as well, even though he didn't, he wasn't the director? No, no, we were in LA and John was in Chicago at that time. Oh, okay. We did fly to Chicago uh, for a preview and he was seeing cuts and he was giving notes. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Do you want to, you want to, so we're going to ask about a couple more and then let him go? Uh, uh, sure. What is it? Uh, what was the one you want to ask well, about? Well, in terms of in terms of because you mentioned how about timing and flow. Yeah. Um, one movie I think you that you edit that you edited that in terms of timing I think is perfect and it's underappreciated is the movie Falling Down because that movie has everything from very slow slow moments to scenes that are just blow you out out of your chair. Uh huh. And I just wanted to talk to you about the process of editing that movie, if you have any stories about it as well. And then working with Joel Schumacher, yeah. Yes, Joel Schumacher. Joel's a character. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he's gay. He's openly gay. Right. He likes to, uh, well, at least he used to like to say things to make straight people feel uncomfortable. He's uh, <laughs> kind of mischievous that way. Um, we were at the mix one day, and uh, Chuck Campbell, who's an older man, was doing the uh, sound on the film, and uh, Joel was on the phone, and Chuck uh, got his attention. He says, "Joel, Joel, could you could you just listen to the the folding? Just tell me if you think this is too loud." And and Joel said, "He says, Chuck, I didn't get into the movie business to listen to Foley. I got into the movie business for the sunglasses and the blowjobs. Joel was a real character, but he was also very gifted. And uh, I think what's interesting about Falling Down is it has the distinction of being the film that had the fewest dailies of any picture I ever worked on. Oh, really? He would shoot uh, minimally and always covered himself and it was quite remarkable it was like uh a blindfolded zen archer hitting the bullseye every day you know <laughs> um i couldn't get over it and I, I said well why do you print so little and he said because i find dailies so boring <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful that makes sense. james did you have any other questions you want to ask for no no i i, I really appreciate it this has been phenomenal so thank you yeah it's it, it, not going out on the radio <laughs> well it will we uh do an audio version and a video version but what i wanted to say is that we could have talked to you for two hours and, and i understand you got to go so where can they find your book um hopefully i know where i got it but... there's still bookstores everywhere but maybe yeah. not you can order it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble uh, website, and on the website of the Chicago Review Press, which uh, is the name of the publisher. 
Yes. And again, the name of that book is A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far, far away. away. Yeah. So do, what upcoming uh, appearances do you have that you'd like to tell our audience about? Anything, well, probably not close to Kentucky, but anything on the East Coast? Um, I'm actually going to the uh, School of the Arts in the University of North Carolina in December. Good. Spend a couple of days there with the students. Uh, the man who's the head of the editing track there is somebody who worked for me a long time ago, Michael Miller. He has a very distinguished editing career himself. He worked yeah. with the Cone Brothers a long time ago. And um, I'm going to see Michael for a couple of days. And then um, I have some events coming up in L.A. I'm going to be at the Egyptian Theater. They're going to show a double bill of Sisters and Blowout. I'm going to sign some books and do a Q&A. And um, there's a couple of conventions in L.A. I'm going to be attending on a panel. Uh, one is called LosCon, which mm -hmm. is Friday. And then there's an Empire Con on December 7th, I believe it is. And I will be planning a trip to uh, New York at some point in the spring. Okay. That hasn't been set yet. It's, it's very interesting being on Facebook and promoting the book on Facebook. And I don't know what authors... Uh, how they managed before Facebook because I've been getting a lot of feedback from people, readers and so forth. And it's really uh, terrific. And I imagine that for authors before Facebook, you put your book out there and it was like, it would be like throwing a bottle into the ocean, mm -hmm. sort of hoping that it would reach some distant shore and maybe somebody will get back to you about it. But I'm, I'm getting a lot of uh, instant feedback, which is very nice. It's amazing. Yeah. I met you guys. Yeah. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> well, and, and, and I do want to say, I mentioned my wife loving your films, and obviously they've had an impact on me. So as, as movie fans, and I'm sure you hear this from a lot of movie fans, but thank you for having a huge impact on what I've watched and, and what I view as important, and, and thank you for that. Yeah, if nothing it's else. Gratifying to hear that. Yeah, if you hadn't just given us Empire and Star Wars and Planes, Trains, but I mean, you 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 gave us Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, I could just go on. So thank you so much for everything. When, maybe one day I can ask you a Dylan Dog question. So um, <laughs> go ahead. Well, it's but it, it's not one of our favorite movies, so we're kind of, we're always kind of curious. <laughs> really, why? Been there. Well, but see, that question sounds very negative, sir, and I don't want to. <laughs> I, once again, people. So our backgrounds are in broadcasting, but we all work in higher ed. What we what we always tell people is, you know, blaming the screenwriter about a movie sucking sometimes is about the same as saying, you know, that Foley or the uh, or the second or the or the grip screwed up that movie. You know, so it's it, there's many cooks in the kitchen. So well, what no, happened on Dylan? The writer has a lot more to do with it than the the grip, you know. Yeah, but you but you know what I mean. It depends because a lot of people have a lot of input. So yeah. Do you want to talk about Dylan Dog and the experience? Do you have a minute if you want to? Go ahead. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Comedy economy had collapsed. I had to work on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I. I'm a big comic book nerd, and it's based on a long-running Italian comic book, and, and I enjoy that comic. 
because it has the the spirit of Groucho Marx and, and things like that. And and then I saw the film and I was like, I think they missed. They a never mark. read that comic. They missed a mark or two. They got Brandon Ralph uh, good, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a short story. That's a good way to end it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your Thank time. You. We really appreciate it. This has been Bonehead Weekly. Please go out and buy Mr. Hirsch's book. A long time ago, in a cutting room far, far away. Like I said, I bought my copy. I'm about seventy pages into it. I plan on finishing hopefully over the next few days on my Thanksgiving break. Sir, it's been a real pleasure to have someone of your caliber on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. If I have right. Lexington, I'll look you up. <laughs> Mm-hmm.